50 years ago, as this podcast is released, Apollo 17 was headed home from the moon to complete the final Apollo moon landing mission. So today we want to talk about the legacy of Apollo. And to discuss this, we're extremely lucky to be joined by Dr. Teasel Muir-Harmony, curator of the Apollo Collection for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. I don't think there can be many who could be more qualified for such a discussion. We'd love to know your thoughts about the legacy of the Apollo program. Get in touch on our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please do us a favor and consider joining our Patreon group by heading to patreon.com forward slash Space and Things. But right now, enjoy episode 120 of the Space and Things podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 120 of the Space and Things podcast. Regular listeners will be aware that this is a pre-recorded episode as Dave has been busy over in the U.S. visiting Air and Space Museums to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17. So there's a chance that next week we could have the first podcast, which we recorded while being in the same room. It's only taken a couple of years. Anyway, that's next week. This week, we're going to carry on talking about that 50th anniversary, the final 50th anniversary for the Apollo moon missions, which naturally brings up some big questions. What did it all mean? Was it all worth it? 50 years on, what can we take away from it all? Well, We're going to have a little delve into that today as we ask, what is the legacy of the Apollo program? And to do this, we're joined again by Dr. Teasel Muir-Harmony, curator of the Apollo Collection for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. We've previously spoken to her about her incredible job and her wonderful book, Operation Moon Glow, back on episode 29. So check out that one if you would like to find out more. But this week, the focus is very much on the anniversary of Apollo 17 and the legacy of Apollo. So let's talk to Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony. I'm on the uh, footpad in Houston. I step off at the surface at Torres Littrow. I'd like to dedicate the first step of Apollo 17 to all those who made it possible. So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Muir Harmony, and thank you for joining us again. So with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo Lunar Missions coming to an end, how do you think the celebrations have gone? And do you have a personal highlight from any of the events over the past few years? I think overall, the the celebrations have gone really well. And one of the things that I've loved seeing is that um, Apollo has been celebrated around the world and that it hasn't just been um, something that we're we're recognizing and marking within the United States. It really is sort of a global celebration, which is great to see. Obviously, the Apollo 11 mission received the most attention, just like it did historically. And I would have loved to see all the other missions get much more recognition, although they were all celebrated, which which is great to see. And for me, 
I would say, I think I, I might've talked about this um, the last time you had me on, but I did an event with uh, Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin, Ellen Stofan and Charlie Bolden, John Logston on um, the history and future of space diplomacy. And for me, that was such a special event. Uh, my research focuses on space diplomacy. So it was really exciting to have the opportunity uh, to do an event that focused on the topic and that shared those stories with more people. And it was also sort of, I guess, somewhat surprisingly or remarkably, the last public event that both uh, Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin did together. Um, and uh, so it, in retrospect, now holds an even more special place for me because of yeah. that. But it was it was a lot of fun. If people are interested in the topic, it's still it's available online. You can, you can watch it. But I um, I interviewed Mike Collins about the the diplomatic tour that the Apollo Eleven crew did after their flight, as well as his time in the State Department as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. And then and then we talked a bit um, about space diplomacy today. And then um, Buzz Aldrin joined at the the end as a surprise guest. Um, and uh, it was it was a special event. So I am just thankful that that was that was part of the anniversary celebration for me. Um, but then we've had so many wonderful events since then as well. And just recently, I got to interview Fred Hayes, which is such a joy. I know he's a good friend of the show and of both of you and, uh, you know, things like that. It's just it's just so lucky to have the opportunity to think back 50 years to, to talk to people like him um, and have him share his reflections on those missions. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the the stuff you did for the Apollo 13 anniversary as well. You're involved in some live streams around then because obviously we were in lockdown, right? Uh, that stuff was amazing. That was that was so funny because... Of course, Apollo 13, like, <laughs> it didn't go well. I mean, it went well at the end. I mean, it worked out, but um, it was it was a bit of a disaster, even in the anniversary celebration. And I did this interview with um, uh, with Jim Lovell, and he was so funny and gracious, and he was making jokes about, like, of course, the Apollo 13 anniversary was celebrated during COVID. It's like, it was at the <laughs> very beginning of COVID, and, um, and we tried to do this interview, but computer words weren't working and it was still like people are just getting used to zoom. And so he had to do this thing where he had, it was like a double setup on his phone and streaming. And so it's, but he was a good sport and like, we used the technology we had, we, you know, found a fix, <laughs> but you know, it seemed, it seemed fitting for the, the, the anniversary of Apollo 13. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at the, the the program as a whole. What what do you think personally is the biggest lesson from the Apollo program? I know that's a huge question. I think with a, with a program like Apollo, it's it's so huge and its impact, historic impact, scientific impact, political impact. Um, it's just it's it's hard to prioritize one one thing that you know what what's the big lesson or or you know what do we take away from Apollo? So. Um, it's almost I find it almost an impossible question, but I do uh, I do think the the perspective on Earth um, that the astronauts shared with us is is yeah. incredibly significant and impactful. And um, I think it's you know, it's it's one of these stories that's really tied to the Apollo 17 mission. It's really fitting. So you have the whole Earth image, the blue marble taken mm. by the Apollo 17 crew. And this this image resonated with people around the world. It was used in the environmental movement. It was uh, used to talk about how there are no political boundaries uh, from, from space. You don't see them on Earth. And one of the things that's interesting about that image is that 
we did have an image of the whole Earth before that, but it was taken by um, a spacecraft, by a satellite. And so, and it didn't have the same kind of cultural resonance that that whole Earth image did, that an image taken by a human did. And so yeah. I think that the, the astronauts' perspective on Earth, what they shared in their descriptions and um, in the television broadcast from, from flight, and then these incredible images that they took with their cameras, uh, that was one of the, the, you know, one of the great impacts. And one of the lessons, I think, is that perspective of Earth as a planet. And I think that Apollo really, through a number of ways, uh, helped us understand or appreciate the Earth as a planet. It's something that we knew before, but I think that it sort of emphasized it in a, in a new way and made it much more concrete because we had that perspective um, mm. from a distance. So do you have a favorite story from the Apollo program that you'd like to share? Well, I, I would focus on Apollo 17 because of the 50th anniversary, and it's related to one of the artifacts um, in my collection. So uh, I'd like to focus on that too. But um, there's a Apollo is definitely a program that can be characterized by a lot of good problem solving and a lot of ingenuity and um, the uh, the fender repair uh, that oh, they yeah. did on Apollo 17 is one of my favorite <laughs> stories. So. The, the last three missions, you know, they had the lunar rover, uh, which is a great vehicle, but they kept on having these issues where they they by accident ripped off parts of the fender in each of those missions. And that became a big, serious problem because um, the lunar dust would get over everything and it um, really sort of like clung to the spacesuits and it could scratch the visors and overheat equipment. Um, and so uh, it was it was a serious problem and, and they ripped it off like near the beginning of the mission. Uh, and so they called down to mission control and explained the problem. They did try to fix it themselves a bit with some duct tape, um, but that just got covered in lunar dust. And so uh, that obviously was not going to work. Um, but Mission Control figured out what they had on board, helped them out, came up with a solution while they were sleeping. And then the next morning they woke up and over breakfast, they got the solution. And it was basically taking some extra maps they had of the lunar surface that they didn't need for that mission, taking some duct tape, which luckily they always had on board, and some clamps. And so they made this fender repair uh, it worked perfectly. They clamped it on uh, to the fender and uh, were able to continue with the mission. And it's really fun because you can see pictures of uh, the lunar rover with the fender repair on the lunar surface. But what was great is this crew also brought some stuff back to Earth. We're really lucky about that. And so they they brought the fender repair back. Oh, and nice. So you can see it. It's on display in the museum now. And it's it's sort of a funny object because it's not quite clear exactly what it is at first. We put it we put it next to the lunar rover and a fender, uh, which helps. But um, if you look at it closely, you can see that it's maps and you can see the lunar dust still on it. It's it's a special artifact. But I think it really does a great job of, of telling that story of of the problem solving, of the teamwork. Um, you know, it's an issue that that did really seriously threaten the astronauts that if they had got covered, if it had um, gotten into their spacesuits and if they had a hard time cleaning that dust off it could it could be fatal so just in terms of uh how the spacesuits connected together and things like that they they found a major issue with that so anyways that is a that is one of my favorite uh stories from apollo 17 and also one of my favorite artifacts yeah i love that that one too um so as an historian what do you think the Apollo program did well back then to make it easy for us now to learn about it? And are there things that you wish they had done, which they didn't? Well, for, for looking back on it, like part of why um, we have some great 
work on the history of the Apollo program is because when NASA was established in 1958, part of the mission of the agency was to record its history. So NASA has done an incredible job of keeping track of its history. They have a chief historian, they have history offices um, and a lot of the centers, and they do really important work. So recording the agency's history. At the time in the 1960s, uh, NASA also had a really robust public affairs office and they were great at distributing information. And I, I can't even tell you how many people told me have told me that when they were kids, they rode into NASA and they got packets of information. You know, they weren't just saving that information for, for journalists, which they are really great at working with journalists, but uh, they were sending that information to anyone who was interested. And it was really, it meant a lot to many kids who were excited about the space program. But then also NASA worked with the State Department and the U.S. Information Agency um, and the White House to disseminate this information abroad as well. So um, the press packets were also going um, to countries around the world. They were getting translated, um, working on programs for um, Radio Free Europe and uh, Voice of America and uh, the creation of films. And you could go on and on and on and also contributing to the buildup of an important communications infrastructure that allowed for people to follow the flights to get this information. And so it's hard to even break it down into a sort of a short answer because the work that was done in the 1960s to get the information out about the space program was so extensive. It involved so many people working around the world. And it was it was a big part of the mission of the Apollo program. Um, as Kennedy saw it, he, he thought it was important um, to win over the hearts and minds of the world public. That's part of what motivated him to invest in spaceflight. And, and if you're going to do that, if you're going to win over more people, if that's part of the objective, you got to get them the information about those missions. You have to get them excited. Um, and so that was also seen as a as a priority. So um, recognizing that you have to get that information out if you're going to meet all the objectives of Apollo. So as we plan to get to back to the moon, which uh, we're, we're just getting back now uh, with Orion and Artemis 1, there's a lot of talk about protecting the lunar heritage sites of Apollo. Do you have a view on what should be done if we ever get near those early sites? And if there was a way to bring something back from the moon for the Smithsonian you know, if that were possible, what would you like to have? <laughs> so my sort of initial thoughts about this is that we should uh, preserve those spaces, the complete sites. I think they're of historic importance to world history um, for generations uh, moving forward. And, and I would like to see at least the, the Apollo landing sites uh, preserved sort of in place, um, undisturbed. I would, though, love to see some sort of on the ground photography of those sites. Um, if there was a way to really to get more information about what everything looks like now. And we've done that a bit with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So getting a sense of, you know, where are the flags? Are they still up? You know, this idea that they're probably bleached white. So we have some information about what those sites look like today. But I would love some more sort of on the ground information and then and then perhaps do some type of exhibit with that. Right. You could, you could picture something pretty cool oh, yeah. with some like a virtual reality exploration of those sites with, with leaving them sort of intact uh, and in place. But 
I've thought about this. And if there was one artifact that I would bring back, it would probably be the the television camera from Apollo 11 that recorded oh, those yeah. first steps on the moon. And it's one of those artifacts that really embodies so much of this, the significance um, and the hi- historic value of the Apollo program. So it recorded that first step on the lunar surface. Uh, that was what we were trying to achieve. That's what we achieved. That's the moment. Um, so that camera was part of that important moment. And then it was also broadcasting um, that first step on the moon back to Earth, uh, which is, uh, you know, that I often see as, the, you know, the second major historical impact of the Apollo program. This is that it extended the bounds of human experience. We went to a place that we'd never been to before, but we also came together in greater numbers than ever before to watch something happen in real time. And, and so that camera also tells that story of that shared experience of the lunar landing. Um, so it, it ties them together in a really important way, that first step and that, that shared experience on Earth. So I I would be tempted to bring that back, although my first kind of intuition is just to leave everything in place. I think it's going to occupy a lot of discussions over the next few years. Not that the the planned Artemis landings are going anywhere near there, but uh, I, I think um, personally, I, at the very least, I'd like 11 and 17 to be preserved, but I know there'll be huge calls for to get in there and pick something up, which I just don't think we should do personally. But So sounds like there's been a lot of changes over at the Smithsonian. So tell us about the new Destination Moon exhibit. Uh, is that still what it's called? I think that's what it's called at, at, the, at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And what makes it different than before? Yeah, so we just reopened uh, half the museum in mid-October, uh, which includes the Destination Moon exhibit. Um, and it's sort of a reimagining of the um, Apollo to the Moon exhibit uh, that had existed in the museum since 1976 when it originally opened. And it's a huge transformation in the ways that we talk about and present Apollo. So on a very basic level, you know, we're answering these questions of why we went to the moon and how we went there. Um, but what we're trying to do is provide a lot more context for visitors. So when the museum first opened in 1976, Apollo 11 astronaut Mike Collins was the director. People remembered what Apollo was. They knew who participated in Apollo. They were familiar with the story. So they didn't they didn't need as much context. They, uh, they didn't need as much material to help interpret the, those stories and its significance. And so what we've done is we've added a lot more of uh, con- historical context and uh, voices. So we really want to emphasize all the people who contributed to Apollo, not just the astronauts. Uh, and so, um, and we've also added a lot of new exciting artifacts too. Um, so it's it's not just the same artifacts um, in the exhibit. Some, some are moved from other places, but um, new artifacts, including uh, components from the, the uh, F1 engines from the Apollo 11 mission that Jeff Bezos retrieved from the ocean floor. That's a really, that's a really great addition. Um, and uh, so it's, I would say sort of a, a reimagined version of the exhibit. We start off talking about um, the importance of imagination uh, in the history of spaceflight. And we have this wonderful mural that was done by Chelsea Bonestell in 1957. And what's great about this is that it was hung at the Boston Science Museum. It's his idea of what the lunar landscape would look like. And, and for his artwork, he really drew on the knowledge of the day. So it was as accurate as it could have been. The Science Museum took it down after, after uh, I think, the Apollo 11 mission, once we realized that's not exactly what the lunar landscape looks like. But um, that type of work was so important in getting people excited and getting people um, thinking about what it might be like to explore these other places, uh, which is an important component in 
um, spaceflight and space exploration today. So we go into that early history and then we talk about the Cold War and politics and we have Alan Shepard's spacecraft uh, in that portion of the gallery, which is a, which is a wonderful addition there. And But then we also talk about the contractors and how Apollo really mobilized the nation and that hundreds of thousands of people worked on the mission and they were based uh, across the country and a huge number of them were contractors. Over over ninety percent of the people working on Apollo were contractors and subcontractors. So we want to tell their story. We tell the story of of women who contributed, minorities who contributed. We we talk. We have a section on the spacesuits, and uh, we include a sewing machine uh, that was used to help make those spacesuits. So uh, sort of a different selection of artifacts than you would have seen in the previous exhibit. Uh, but then also some of the familiar stories that are are you know people want to come see as well. So we we have the command module Columbia in the middle of the uh, the gallery and it's um, it's really nice to see it there. I also want to mention a little plug uh, for the One World Connected exhibit which is right next door and um, it's a, another exhibit that I'm involved in and it's uh, it tells the story of how aerospace has transformed our understanding of Earth and our experience on planet Earth so especially with this theme of how Earth is an interconnected uh, world and we have a very special Apollo artifact in that gallery. That's why I bring it up. Uh, but we have we have the camera that took the Earthrise image. And oh wow! What's so remarkable about this artifact is that there was a lot of cameras at the Kansas Cosmosphere. We weren't sure if the camera from the Earthrise that took the Earthrise image was the Apollo eight camera in that in that lot until um, just a few months ago when our curator, who's an expert on astronaut photography was able to handle it in person when it came to the museum for the exhibit and um, check out the serial numbers, look at it, investigate it in detail. And she recognized that this is actually the one that Bill Anders used to take that photo. So it's on display for the first time with the knowledge that this is the Earthrise camera. So Apollo fans, if you visit the museum, make sure to also go visit um, One World Connected right next to Destination Moon, because that's like a very special artifact that shouldn't be missed. Absolutely. That's amazing. So we've, we've had a, a last minute question come in from one of our patrons, Don, Don Irwin. And he asked, with the launch of Artemis 1 and the renewed interest among the public about future lunar missions, are you planning any changes to the Apollo exhibits? For example, is the mu museum planning any type of then and now focus? Yeah, so we, at the end of the Destination Moon exhibit, we've left some space to update uh, the text, those panels to talk about current and future lunar exploration. And what's a sort of a funny behind the scenes story is that we had the text ready where we were waiting to print out the panel until uh, Artemis one was launched in August. Cause we were like, we're gonna, we're gonna wait till that mission is launched so that we can print it out and be, you know, really, really up to date. And, you know, it just, the delays, unfortunately, <laughs> in the opening of the museum in mid-October, we're like, we're just, we're going to have to go ahead and print it out. Um, but we we do plan on updating the end of the Destination Moon exhibit to reflect the stories of, of uh, contemporary uh, lunar exploration. And then we have some other exhibits in the museum that'll help tell that story as well. So we have... Um, an exhibit that will be uh, in the, the other end of the museum, a temporary exhibit on the future of space exploration. Um, so uh, some of those stories about what we're doing in space today and possibly tomorrow are going to be told in other areas of the museum. Does the Smithsonian have the same deal with NASA 
for future artifacts as it used to have with the Apollo artifacts, for example? Yeah, so we have this NASA NASM agreement uh, that was uh, established in the in the 1960s. I believe it was the 60s. Um, it was like at the time then it would have been <laughs> NASA Smithsonian. Um, but when when NASA is done with its hardware, when it no longer needs it, um, we're we're offered that hardware to to add to the collection, and that's a big part of the reason we have incredible Apollo collection and I have so many art of my artifacts out on loan to other museums. We still have that agreement today. One of the, the sort of the complications of it is that the way that NASA contracts with uh, commercial space companies is different today than it once was. And so if you think about NASA's relationship to SpaceX and um, NASA isn't buying the hardware from SpaceX, we're, it's basically renting, you know, um, uh, rides to, to the International Space Station and using uh, SpaceX hardware, but not owning it, right? Not owning the IP. And so because of the ways that contracting has changed over time, our collecting is also going to have to evolve as well. So the NASM, NASM, NASA, NASM agreement is not going to, you know, completely cover all the great material that we'll want to um, add to the national collection. And finally, uh, obviously to the three of us, you know, Apollo is a very important program, a really important moment in history. How do you feel that we can best get the message about this inspiring moment in time and this inspiring program out to the people who maybe aren't, you know, diehard space enthusiasts like like we are? One of the important evolutions that we've done at the, the museum, but I, I also see this more generally, is, is looking for ways to to emphasize the relevance of Apollo to people's lives, to people today, and telling the stories uh, of people who contributed to Apollo, to those different missions, um, highlighting the, the people that might connect to a, a much wider variety of people interested in the story. So that's probably not the most articulate way to put it, but um, I think it's really important to, to talk about the contribution of women to Apollo. If, if, you're, if you're wanting to get young girls or, or women excited in Apollo or trying to understand its, its relevance to their life and, and perhaps um, something that they could connect to, I think it's important to tell those stories and emphasize those stories. Um, and I think we're doing a much better job of that. Um, we're trying to do that at, at the museum so that everyone who visits can see themselves in the story because at first blush, it may seem like a story about you know, 24 white men who went to the moon in 1960, but there's a lot more to it. Um, and you know, those are hundreds of thousands of people who made that happen. And their stories are, are interesting and relevant. And there's a lot of potential for, you know, seeing yourself in them and connections and not just when it comes to sort of various identities, but also, um, you know, those interesting stories of problem solving that we can relate to in our own lives or overcoming challenges. I think telling more of those stories, uh, a larger variety of those stories is going to be a great way to get people interested and hooked. And then the other thing, I think there's sort of an endless amount of great stories from all the different, different missions <laughs> and the development of this hardware. And I think just the more storytelling we can do and, and finding different ways to do some of that that storytelling, some of those 
um, those challenges you don't hear as much about. Um, there's a lot of potential there. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a, a lovely chat. I think it's fitting to have this chat right now. It's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, we're going to end the 50th and go straight into the 60th. Almost. It's it's not going to, you know, anniversaries are going to start coming around thick and fast all over again. I suppose the 50th has a slight different importance in many ways. And potentially, unfortunately, the last time and many of, of the heroes that were a part of that were around. So it's, it's something that I'm really glad we've been able to talk about quite a lot over the last couple of years. And thank you for joining us to, to do it one more time. Uh, I'm sure we'll find other things to talk about in future as well. But yeah, thanks very much much for joining us yeah my pleasure skylab uh, anniversaries are coming up soon absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's my 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 time <laughs> your moment uh, it's my moment yes this is he and i'm on the surface and as i take man's last step from the surface we leave as we came and god willing as we shall return Oh, man. It feels so weird, doesn't it, that we're coming to the end of the Apollo 50. If I know we're not completely, because, you know, there's something else coming up that used the same hardware uh, that <laughs> shall not be named. But, you know, the, the moon element of this, uh, which was obviously the main uh, purpose of the Apollo program, is coming to an end. The 50th anniversary is coming to an end. And it's been such a big deal for me, the 50th anniversaries. I, I, I've put a lot of personal investment and time into them. I, I wonder whether our listeners have as well, but I certainly have. And yeah. I've learned so much more about them. It's, it still feels like we're forever learning more about what happened and why it happened. And, you know, they're still opening up the boxes of rocks every now and then, you know. Exactly. Even, even the, you know, we, when we had the plants grown in Lunar, lunar Regolith. That was from the Apollo program. You know, that's exactly. it's still happening, isn't it? So I just think it's such an important program. And I kind of don't want the 50th stuff to end. Me too. It's kind of sad in a way. It's really, to me, there's a lot of poignancy because, number one, it's sort of on the, you know, the Apollo anniversaries are dovetailing off. But meanwhile, Artemis is starting. Yeah. So I find that very poignant in a way. Like, okay, this... This is kind of coming to an end, but something new is starting, like just starting, you know, mm. and then it's sort of and I, this sounds very sad and morbid and I don't want to focus too much on this, but it's very sad because a lot of the guys from that era, you know, that I mean, not just the astronauts, a lot of the main people from that period have just passed away. I mean, a lot of them are in their 90s now, you know, recently Jim McDivitt died and he was a huge part of Apollo like I said, not just the astronauts. I mean, we're talking, you know, people who worked on the program, all kinds of people. So it's very poignant in the fact that, you know, that era, that generation that brought it, ushered in that era is sort of coming to an end as well, which really sucks. But I don't know. The word I keep coming back to is poignant just because it's like this circle is sort of coming to a close, but new ones are opening yeah. at the same time. Apollo will always be incredible to me. Like it's never, yeah, those photos are 50 plus years old now, but I never get tired of looking at it. I mean, look at Apollo remastered that just came out. Exactly. It looks brand new. I mean, it's like looking at it through a new set of eyeballs. They look, you know, it's like seeing it for the first time. 
I don't think that's ever going to lose its excitement ever. I think when you look deep into the future as well, I think when people look back at the 20th century or even the 400 year period that that sits in, the, the one of the standout things that's going to be remembered is the first time humans put boots on another surface of another terrestrial body that wasn't the Earth. And the first time that people left uh, the, the Earth's gravitational pull and things like that, I think it's, it's going to be something that's remembered forever. Long, long after people have forgotten about Michael Jordan or whatever, people are going to still talk about Neil Armstrong, you know, when people might have stopped talking about the Beatles, but it's likely they're still going to be talking about Neil Armstrong as is in my thought process of how this will pan out as you know maybe the Beatles will still be there Shakespeare we still talk about Shakespeare I'm going to still hope that the Beatles might still be there but we're gonna you're not going to talk about all the stars from the 60s that we still talk about that will get filtered down whereas the Apollo program is just is there's no doubt in my mind that it's it's going to be the defining thing of that generation of of our generation as well to an extent as well exactly no I, I completely agree I think Things in culture, you know, sort of filter down and certain things lose. The, I I don't know how to put it. Certain things sort of lose their significance over time. Like, you know, you kind of look at it and you're like, culturally, nah. you know, it was, it was cool and it was popular. But I don't think Apollo is going to lose that sense of significance, like you said, because it was the first time that they went to deep space for the first time. They put boots on another world. And I think as as humanity reaches, oh, my God, here we go. Just 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 bring out the Quindar tone now. <laughs> I think as humanity reaches out further into the high frontier, as Gerard K. O'Neill put it, you know, we're going to see more people step on different worlds. We're going to see more people go to deep space. They may not go to other planets or other surfaces, but it may be space habitats or something or space stations. I think that's really going to happen. And I think but that'll be the first time that we did it and it's still yeah. going to be significant because you only can do something there's only one time you do a first milestone granted that you know and i don't want to take significance or anything away from what's happening today like artemis it's still incredible that we're doing it you know and that we're going back that not to take you know i don't want to make it sound like well what we're doing now doesn't matter you know whatever it does but still you can only do something first the first time yeah and see through that lens i guess the first time i don't know for sure and i think artemis has a different focus as well it's but, but exactly. it's the first it's important to us right now because the first time in our lifetime where we're going there but we look at us we're still madly in love with the apollo program and i don't think that's going to change and i don't think that no matter how successful or hopefully not unsuccessful artemis is that's not going to diminish our love for the Apollo program and 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 the world's love of the Apollo program. I think it's just a really special thing. Hey, uh, I was looking at uh, online. I think it was on Hipsters, and someone posted the original artist thought process of the paint job they were going to do on Artemis, and the the core central stage was going to get painted like a like the Saturn V. Did you see that? Yeah. I did see that. I saw that. That was actually pretty cool. I would love that. I understand why they didn't do it because it probably would have weighed a ton, <laughs> weighed a lot more. But still, I love the Saturn V paint job, except for the SA five hundred F. I don't like that ah. because the five hundred F is that's another story for another day. We should probably do 
if we do an episode on things I hate, yes, things I hate completely in space flight, let's do it about the 500F paint scheme because you will see it on stuff that's like not even appropriate. Well, that sounds like a, an episode we need to record, Emily. Let's get, let's get that one done. <laughs> Let's stop this conversation and get that done. Anyway, it was great to talk to Dr. Mio Harmony again. She's uh, Her job is the best job in the world. I wish I had it. Uh, and, yes. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to go and visit her at some point, Emily. I think that would be pretty cool. That uh, would be amazing, and, yes. and go and look around that museum together. Okay, the, as always, the full video of that interview will be up on our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash space and things. And I'll also be posting videos and links for things that were mentioned in that interview in our show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com. Like you've been flying well up there, partner. The spacecraft looks good. Uh, you betcha. Here we go. A super flying machine. That's kind of tinny to me. Okay, a few weeks ago, I was going to have this as my things that caught my eye, but I end up talking about Artemis instead. So I figured, why not bring it up now? Because we've got a bit of time in this episode. So it's out now. Hopefully you might have been able to watch it. On the 23rd of November on Amazon Prime, Goodnight Opie is a new documentary which is coming out. Now, obviously, at the point of recording, I've not seen this. And I know Emily hasn't seen it. So we can't have too much of a discussion about it. Fortunately, one of our listeners has seen it. They went to a cinema screening of it. They saw it twice. Dana Lucas, who very kindly has sent me this review, which I'd like to read out. Now, uh, Dana has a blog, which uh, I would suggest you all check out. It's misfitscully.wordpress.com, and I will put that link in the show notes. But this is uh, Dana's review of this movie, which I really want to see. So it's about the Opportunity uh, mission and Spirit uh, mission that went to Mars launched in 2003. So here's the review. The movie talks about how the rovers were thought up, created with archived snippets of film to illustrate what is being said by people that were responsible for the rovers. The documentary is a love letter for these people. You can see it in their faces and hear it in their voices. If you know the story of Spirit and Opportunity, be ready for some emotional moments as the rovers age and sadly both stop communicating with earth these amazing machines prime mission was intended to last 90 souls spirit lasted 2208 while opportunity went on to be operational for 5111 souls which is quite amazing really watching this film made me realize all over again how amazing they are mars is a difficult place to get to and land on 50 percent of the missions to the red planet fail the sequences on Mars of the rovers are beautifully recreated by CGI by ILM, who are one of the production companies behind this wonderful feature, along with Amazon Studios and Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. My sister is a teacher, and I know it will be showing this to her students. In years to come, there will be a generation of space scientists who will say this film lit the spark and made them realise there was a job for them. I seriously cannot recommend this enough. Do not be put off. You do not need to be clever to watch it. Enjoy and learn. That's a review from Dana Lucas of Goodnight Opie, uh, which is out now on Amazon Prime. And I am hoping to have that lined up so I can watch it on my long haul flight over to America because I'm really excited about this. As it's closed, barely. Hey, Jack, don't lock it. I'm not going to lock it. We got we to gotta go back there. You lose the key, we're in trouble. 
I'm not sure what next week will bring. If we were able to record something while we were together for the first time, then I'm sure it will be that. But at the point of recording this, we will still need to work out the logistics for that. Yep, we do. But whether we did or we didn't, we'll be back next week for episode 121. Thanks for listening this week. Thanks to all those who hit the share button. And don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.